Welcome to another instalment of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. Shortly, Stephanie Preisner will bring us some news from the book world and Sebastian Barry will be questioned by members of the Castlebar Library Book Club. But before all that, Maggie O'Farrell has realised something of a long-held ambition in writing Hamnet. That's spelt with an N, not an L. Hamnet. It is the fictional story of William Shakespeare's real son, who died of the plague aged 11, but about whom very little is known. She reckons he may just have inspired the character of his effective namesake, Hamlet. It's the product of years of research and plenty of creative imagining for Maggie O'Farrell, who joins us on The Book Show now. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The book is beautiful. It's one of the few things that's actually kept me reading throughout the course of the last few weeks when I've been having reader's block. So what's it like having a book that you've laboured about for so long come out at a time when bookstores are closed everywhere? Well, you know, I think everything at the moment is strange, isn't it? You know, from whether you're posting a letter or whether you're, you know, going for a walk with your kid. I mean, everything is so peculiar that it it doesn't really seem that peculiar. You know, I think just every every aspect of life is very strange at the moment but no it it is weird because usually you know at the end of you know however long it takes you to write you know three or four years to write a book and usually at the end of it you get to go out you know you get to kind of actually be a social being for a while because writers are not very social (laughs) and you get to go out and you get to meet booksellers and readers and you have all this kind of conversation about books and your book and other books and that's fantastic so that I'm really missing that actually I'm really missing the contact with other people and other readers actually uh, before we get into the, the, the book itself, maybe just tell me briefly about your relationship with Shakespeare's plays before you came to the idea of, of writing Hamlet. Well, I, I was really lucky, actually, because I, I think I was born into a generation when we did Shakespeare really quite young. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed, actually, when my kids are going through school and they, they don't study Shakespeare that much anymore, which I find really heartbreaking. You know, I think I did it at my first year of Comprehensive when I was 11. I remember reading Romeo and Juliet. Um, so, you know, we, we had it very early on and I think it's good. I mean, it is, it is hard, you know, it's a huge challenge when you're that age diving into that language and that worldview. But I remember it being terribly exciting, you know, cause you've heard about him, you know, for so long, even as a child. And then you get this language, which is so alien and so strange yet slightly familiar as well. I remember it being very exciting. Um, but the, the, the book idea first came to me when I was 16 and I was studying Hamlet um, for my Scottish hires and my teacher mentioned in passing that Shakespeare had, had a son called Hamnet which of course is, is pretty much the same name in, in Elizabethan times the spelling was so unstable that it is it is the same name it's interchangeable in Paris records of the time um, and so I could never forget this because it, it, it was such a sign I think from this very this most mysterious and iconic of men and I you know I studied literature at university um, and of course, I was reading, you know, lots of criticism and these big kind of 500 page biographies um, shaped like a, you know, shaped like a doorstop. He gets maybe two mentions if he's lucky. You know, they mention his birth and then they mention his death. And his death was always followed by several paragraphs about how common child mortality was in those days. Almost you know, the implication, the unspoken implication was that it wouldn't really have been that upsetting or that much of a big deal because lots of children died. And, you know, I found that so it was such an outrageous assumption to think that that family didn't grieve for that boy. I mean, he was 11, you know, um, and the idea that that wouldn't have had any impact on his sisters or his mother or his father is obviously preposterous. You know, we, we, we could know that. We know that without even thinking about it. But also, you know, the fact that, you know, because Shakespeare is such a mysterious figure, you know, we know so little about him, really. His life story is filled with such voids and longers. Um, but the idea that he is speaking to us and he's speaking volumes to us as an audience and as readers by naming 
his probably his most famous play and his most famous anti-hero after his dead son you know that is not nothing that is a huge a huge act and it's telling us an awful lot it's telling us about the depths of his grief i think you're sort of writing into a blank space here you you can almost write what you want is that uh, is that a privilege or do you see that as being something quite intimidating no, I mean, obviously, writing about him was, was quite intimidating. I suppose what I'm asking readers to do with this book is to kind of forget everything they think they know about him and his life and put it to one side and maybe open themselves up to an interpretation that may be different from what they think they know. You know, because I've always felt, I mean, rightly so, obviously, all these biographies and criticism focuses on Shakespeare's career in London. And of course, of course they would. But I've always felt that, you know, the biggest drama and tragedy of his life um, happened off stage in Stratford in that house in Henley Street and that's the death of his son. And a huge part of it obviously is the nature of his relationship with his his wife Agnes and I've, I've seen you say and rightly so that if you asked people about Shakespeare's wife they know almost nothing about her apart from the, the, the story that she tricked him into marriage in some way shape or form but there's actually no <laughs> historical no. evidence to bolster that at all is there? Not at all. I mean, the thing is, there's actually very, very little historical information about her at all. You know, if we think we don't know much about Shakespeare, we know even less about, you know, the woman we know as, or we think of as Anne Hathaway. Um, I mean, there, there's no record of her birth, for example, because that was before parish records were even kept. And the thing that surprised me, well, there were two things that surprised me, you know, um, one which was which the reading of her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before um, Anne and William got married. And he, um, he, and he, in his will, he mentions his dowry. He leaves her a very generous dowry. But he describes her as my daughter, Agnes, uh, which in those days would have been pronounced Agnes or Annes, like uh, a bit like the French. But I was so shocked when I, read, <laughs> when I read that. And I was thinking, well, you know, have we been calling her by the wrong name for 400 years? You know, because, I mean, surely if anyone knows her name, it would be her dad. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he would have been, you know, uh, involved in giving it to her. But also, the other thing that really, really shocked me, uh, you know, in a sense, because because when I when I first conceived the book, I thought it was going to be a book about fathers and sons, a bit like the play is. But I got, I mean, Agnes, as I as I call her now, I wanted to give her back this name. Um, you know, she has attracted so much criticism and opprobrium um, for so long. You know, I mean, there are so, like I said, there are so few scant things known about her. But for some reason, you know, people are filled in these gaps with a huge amount of criticism and hostility, which I don't really understand. You know, there is this whole kind of um, narrative that a lot of critics and scholars and biographers have had is that she, that she was this older peasant who trapped him into marriage, that he didn't love her, that he had to run away to London to get rid of her. He only left her, you know, a second best bed in her will. So people are sort of rushing to kind of fill this void with a kind of retrospective divorce that they wanted him to have, which I find really baffling because there is no evidence of that, really. I mean, you know, there are two things that really stand out for me. Is at the end of his career, when he retired, um, he came back to Stratford um, to live with her. And I don't think that doesn't seem to me the act of a man who hated his wife or regretted his marriage. And, you know, by the time he retired, he was the equivalent of a multimillionaire. He was an incredibly good businessman. And you know, but he chose in London, he chose to live in very, very modest lodgings um, and he sent every penny he earned in London back to Stratford where he bought his wife and daughters after Hamlet died. This enormous house, I mean, vast, it would have been a mansion. But he also bought cottages and fields and lots of properties that he rented out. And, you know, it just that to me speaks of a man whose heart was actually in Stratford still. 
one of the other things that interested me uh, most reading the book now is that obviously part of the story revolves around death and it revolves around plague. And and this is an abstract concept Mm. for you when you're writing the book. But the world moves on and we are where we are. And now it seems to be far more in all of our lives. Yes. I mean, that was it was not something I... I, you know, I, I had no sense that this was about to happen, obviously, as none of us did. Apart from Barack Obama, I have to say. I mean, the plague or the Black Death, as we now know it, was, it was an ever-present threat in um, 16th century lives. That, you know, I mean, it, it constantly disrupted Shakespeare's career, you know, because the first thing they did in London, if there was a sign of the disease, was to shut the playhouses. So Shakespeare would have had months and months um, away from the globe or whichever theatre he was working in, and he, and he would have had to go on tour in smaller towns, or he perhaps went home to Stratford and perhaps wrote something like King Lear, we don't know. <laughs> but uh, so no, it, well, I mean, at the time it seemed, you know, it seemed so alien. I, I do remember sitting at my desk thinking, you know, well, what would it feel like to know that there was this deadly disease sweeping across continents towards you? What would it feel like to discover that it was in your street, it was in your house, you know, God forbid. Um, but of course now it's really peculiar because I find myself, you know, as we all are, looking at infographics and these big arrows of infection, and the odd thing is that those maps look exactly the same as the ones I still have pinned up on my study wall, which I'm looking at now, which are about the plague. So it is very strange to find us in in a very similar and parallel situation. But I do think it's important to hang on to the idea that, you know, we we are in the present day very, very lucky compared to them because they had no sense of what was causing it. You know, the, the idea that the, the Black Death was linked to a flea wasn't even discovered until the late sort of 19th century they had no idea how to treat it. They had none of the medicines or the ventilators or the doctors and nurses at our disposal. So it, it, it does put it in perspective when you read about it, when you read about what they as a population went through. And I, I do feel that we are, it may not, we know, may not feel very lucky right now, but I think we are the lucky ones compared to them. Um, maybe perhaps just before we, we finish, I did want to ask you about this. I saw you say elsewhere that you, you felt you couldn't write this book in your house where your, where your kids live. So you actually went yeah. to the shed. Why did you go to the shed? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, obviously I should also point out that when I say shed, it's not a nice shed like Philip Pullman's shed or Roald Dahl's shed. It was <laughs> it's actually, it's it's a actually shed. being destroyed and we had some, <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't that kind of, yeah, it's a kind of filthy and it was leaking in the roof and it's actually now being destroyed. It was flattened by a storm this winter, so it is no more. But I, uh, so I, I don't know, there was something about, you know, because I knew that I was going to have to face this scene where... Agnes, the mother, sits beside the bed of her son and cannot save him. And it's funny, I, as I was kind of nearing this scene, I find myself slightly slowing down because I didn't really want to, I didn't want to get into it. You know, I was sort of resisting it. So, so when I did actually come to write it, I, I found that I couldn't, as you say, write it in the house where my kids live, you know, because I have a, I have my, a, a boy, you know, who's now, well, he's almost uh, 17 now, but I, I couldn't write the book. I couldn't even begin writing the book until I knew he was well past the age of 11. Not that there was been much danger of him dying of contracting the Black Death, but it was just something I couldn't face up to. So I would write it in about 20 minute bursts in the end, and then I would have a little walk around the garden, and then I would go back to my dilapidated spider filled shed, and, and I would write another 20 minutes. So I had to do it in quite short blocks. Maggie O'Farrell, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so many for being on The Book Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you too, Rick. Since we spoke, Hamnet has been shortlisted for the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction. It's by Maggie O'Farrell and is published by Tinder Press. And now, as promised, time for book news with Stephanie Preisner. Stephanie, we're starting with adaptations coming to the screen. 
we certainly are. So we're going to start with Sally Rooney's Normal People, the adaptation of which is on this Tuesday on RTE. You know, the thing about adaptation is that even if you hated the book or if you loved the book, it's worth checking out the adaptation because someone is going to get what they want. You're either going to be excited because it's just like the book that you loved or you might like it because you hated the book and they haven't stuck to the text and it's a whole new world. So it's definitely worth checking out this Tuesday. I think you're right on both of those. I think Paul Meskell is a really good actor. I've seen him on stage. Now, I don't know if you saw Daisy Edgar Jones was in War of the Worlds on TV recently. She looks exactly the way I imagined Marianne to be. So I think, I think you're right. I'm really excited to see that. And another thing I'm excited to see is Sergio, which is on Netflix now and is an American biographical drama film about the United Nations diplomat Sergio Vera de Mello. But it's a documentary film based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book by Samantha Power. I think her book was actually called Sergio, One Man's Fight to Save the World, which is a great title. It's on Netflix and I'm going to watch it tonight. It's also Stephen King week as well, isn't it? Yes, the number one New York Times best-selling author. I love him. He has a new collection of four new short stories i've only read one of them so far because it only came out last week and it's called if it bleeds i read mr harrigan's phone which is a teenager discovering that his dead friend's phone still communicates with him beyond the grave and i mean if you like stephen king it's just four amazing little stephen king stories so can i be completely honest with you i have only ever read one Stephen King book ever seen all the adaptations as movies I've read Doctor Sleep and it's the uh, only one I've read that's the worst one and that it, isn't... it wasn't great I'll be honest with you well start with Pet Cemetery and come back to me am I getting homework now from from uh, from you which is fair enough I, I fully accept the, the, yes. the, the idea of homework that's okay you're going to tell me finally about a brand new literary journal Yes, Paper Lanterns, which you can find at paperlanternslit.com. It's a new literary journal that discusses all things teen and young adult literature. Each issue has kind of three sections of creative writing, features and book reviews. But what's really special about this is that it's for writers and artists and readers. So if you want to submit your own work or you just want to feel part of the community, they have a book club, there's plenty of room for everyone and you can find it at paperlanternslit.com. Okay, that's our news for this week. Thanks, Stephanie. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, Rick. Every week on The Book Show, we want to give your book club the opportunity to put some questions to an author whose work you've discussed at one of your meetings. This week, we're welcoming the Castlebar Library Book Club in Castlebar, County Mayo. Here's Darina Malloy to tell us a little bit about who they are. Castlebar Library Book Club has been meeting since 2003, although our online presence only dates back to 2005. And in that time, we have met every month, always the second Tuesday of the month, upstairs in Castlebar Library, in its gorgeous light-filled exhibition space, overlooking the Mall area, described so well by Mike McCormick in Solar Bones. We are a mixed bunch, men and women, all ages, and varying opinions. The one thing we all have in common is that we love, absolutely love, books and reading. We don't tend to get very bogged down in serious discussions about themes and language and characters, although we do invariably touch on all of these things. We agree to disagree, mostly, and there haven't been too many fights throughout the years. Some ones we read two books, but it's mostly one. But that means that we've read just short of 300 books since we started. And we are still talking to each other.
This month, we had our first Zoom book club, which went a lot better than expected. And a very respectable four stars was awarded to Leonard and Hungry Paul, written by Ronan Hessian. Next month, we'll be discussing A Thousand Moons. We had, of course, already read Days Without End shortly after it was published. So everybody is really looking forward to seeing what happens next. And here's Ken Armstrong with a synopsis of Days Without End. The story concerns two young men, Thomas McNulty from Sligo and John Cole from New England, who said his great-grandma was an Indian. They are two wood shavings of humanity in a rough world who form a lifelong alliance after meeting as boys under a rain-drenched hedge in Missouri. The novel charts their extraordinary life story, first as teenage saloon dance partners to lonely gold prospectors, and then, when they grow too tall for their dresses, as career soldiers in both the American Indian Wars and the American Civil War. Brutal and tender by turns, Thomas McNulty's narrative opens up a world that is simultaneously outlandish, and yet entirely believable. Many of the sentiments expressed by the central character also seem particularly apt in our time of lockdown and social change. I am thinking of those days without end of my life, Thomas says. And it is not like that now. Near the end of the book, he says, All that stint of daily life we sometimes spit on like it was something waste. But it all there is, and in it is enough. And Sebastian Barry, the author of Days Without End, joins me now. Sebastian, welcome to the book show. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, before we talk about that book, you've just published the, the follow-up to it, A Thousand Moons. M- maybe just tell us a little bit about that and maybe tell us why write a follow-up to Days Without End. Yeah, and no, I've been puzzling over the word follow-up and sequel, as they say in your film contract. To me, I think it has the same relation to all the other books as as it does to Days Without End, if you regard these eight books as a little solar system, which are to some degree influenced by each other's gravity. But I did feel when I had finished Days Without End that there was a little bit of unfinished business in the fact that we only had Winona through Thomas's eyes, very, very, very loving eyes. And maybe that was partly the caution in my mind. I mean, I know I worship my two daughters, but how they see themselves is a different matter. And I thought my job might be to sit very quietly in my workroom and see if she was inclined to tell her story, you know, to a a stupid, straight, white, old Irish writer in Wicklow. and as authentically as possible tell her her story and how she saw the world. Okay, we're going to skip back uh, firstly then to uh, Days Without End. We're going to go to the Castlebar Library Book Club there, our featured book club this week. The first question for you about Days Without End comes from Helen Inglesby. Hello, Sebastian. I was intrigued while reading it about how much knowledge and information there is in it about both American Indians and the American Civil War. And I wondered what inspired you to write about this period in American history and how you went about researching it. There are many points of uh, implication and enchantment before you write a book, and it can these can occur over decades. And, and indeed, um, the first hint of even thinking about this time in American history was my grandfather, uh, with whom in the chill of a 1970s oil strike I shared a bed, uh, telling me that his great-uncle had been at the Indian Wars. Now, 
I thought probably at that age I knew what he was talking about since I'd been up to the Adelphi Cinema every Saturday to see the cowboy films. At the end of the period of 50 years maybe thinking about this book, though, was a brief friendship with a wonderful man called Peter Matheson. Uh, he was very concerned about modern Native America. And between those two points, well, I suppose I did, as you would expect, I read the 250 books that you have to read, trying to find the stray things that you could then, in books that you could then forget and allow to rise up naturally as you were, as Thomas indeed was telling the story. Our second question from the Castlebar Library Book Club then comes from Anne O'Hara. What do you think brings us back as readers, time and again, to America's untamed past? Is it the period itself that is so evocative for us? Or is it perhaps the many representations of that era that we've been seeing ever since we were children? Well, my generation were raised on these B-movies of, of cowboy films, of which probably sent Irish cinemas bought in quite cheaply and it was something to feed the the children of the town on a Saturday morning when they'd heard you in the Adelphi cinema they used to herd you into the balcony uh, tightly packed uh, like as if we were dangerous sardines of some sort but anyway and there'll be a chap there with his torch uh, keeping order over us and we were fed these films to the, such a degree I think that unlike previous generations whose heroes may have been Cucullin uh, and all the rest and the Fianna and all that uh, our heroes were the mythical creatures that John Wayne played and, and all the rest of it. And that was our mythology and that, that was the father of our dreams. And wasn't it amazing when you went to America, if you were a young man or woman, to find these sets, as it were, <laughs> with living players passing up and down them, that it was a place that actually existed. I remember the shock in 1984 when I went to Iowa University of sitting in a cinema watching a film, an American film, and for the first time realising that the people in the theatre, this was their subject matter. They were people of these subjects, unlike ourselves, who mostly at that time, without an Irish film industry to speak of, were voyeurs of these American uh, conditions. And I suppose that is in our imaginations. And whether we want to get it out or, or augment it is, is another question. And our final question comes from Ken Armstrong again in Castlebar. This isn't really a question at all. It's just something that I hope might make your day better if you don't know it already. In 1995 when I lived in London my boss and his wife went to a dinner party where one of the guests turned out to be Peter O'Toole. My boss came into work the next day and told us that Peter had spent the entire evening singing the praises of the Stuart of Christendom which he had seen at the Royal Court and of Donald McCann's performance in it, saying it was one of the best things he had ever seen in a theatre. As a Sligo man myself, I love how so much of your work references my home county. I know some of your family originated from there, but do you feel you have a close affinity with the county yourself? Well, uh, Ken, just to augment your, your anecdote about Peter O'Toole, he was a great friend of Donald McCann, who played the steward of Christendom, and Peter O'Toole came, to, obviously, to the show in the Royal Court. And he's, I think he said to Donald, at least Donald said, he said, <laughs> which may, may be accurate or not, uh, that when Donald was finished with it, I'll take over the rights. And he did make a, a manful, manly <laughs> effort to buy the rights. A few years later, you know, very good theatre in California wanted to do it, and I said, well, maybe Peter Toole will play it. 
<laughs> and he sent a message through his agent to the management of this theater in uh, San Francisco. Peter O'Toole is not for hire in any theater of the world. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Anyway, <laughs> um, that was a great adventure, though. Even to hear that was, was magical in itself. Um, but you ask about my connections to Sligo or... I mean, I have infinite connections to Sligo. I am that little boy of five or six who was more or less embedded as a witness in Sligo when my grandfather would bring me west to see his parents who lived in a tiny house beside the Garavogue. Pat O'Hara, my great-grandfather, was the founder and leader of what was called either Pat O'Hara's Orchestra when he was playing for the Toffs or just Pat O'Hara's Band when he was playing out in Strand Hill in his dance hall for, the, for everybody else. So... Um, and, of course, my mother's from Sligo, and I grew up on both frightening and uh, enlivening stories of her childhood, which was quite dark, but also in her, transmuted by her imagination, also quite magical. And when my mother died in 2007, not knowing quite what to do, as sons sometimes do not, I brought her ashes to the top of... I hope uh, Sligo County Council isn't cross with me now, but and I scattered her up there. So my connection, obviously, now to Sligo is permanent and infinite. I should add that on the way down, I slipped and broke a number of ribs. So I wasn't entirely certain she was happy with <laughs> me putting her up there. But um, I also feel very connected to Mayo, though, I have to say. I'm, you know, Anne O'Hara has just asked a question and I presume she's one of the Foxford or the Mayo O'Hara's, because the McNulty name, obviously, in these books is standing in for the mysterious and ancient name of O'Hara, which was my mother's family's name. My thanks to Sebastian Barry for answering those questions from Castlebar, and the follow-up to Days Without End, A Thousand Moons, is out now on Faber and Faber. If you and your book club would like to put a few questions to a particular author, you can get in touch with us by sending us your details to bookshow at rte.ie. That's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can find us also on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme. See you next week. 